just some background thoughts as we get ready to read this section and, and encounter God's Word here. We, uh, in our men's Bible study, we're going through the Gospel of John. Uh, it's been a great time, and, and, um, and I've loved co-leading with Anthony, by the way. Uh, there's a Tuesday night group and a Saturday morning group. Uh, and just encountering Christ in the Gospels is just so wonderful. And, and uh, the Gospel stories of Jesus are probably the most popular things in culture uh, as far as the Bible. People love to, to learn about Jesus and different, you know, this time of year you have the different TV series and so forth. And uh, I know many of us have enjoyed The Chosen. There's lots of things in his teaching that's just amazing. But there are some things in his teaching that aren't so popular and are kind of difficult. And we've, as we've gone through John, we've seen that. Uh, John chapter 6, there's a, uh, a scene there where Jesus has fed the, the thousands with the loaves and fishes. He's multiplied the loaves and fishes and, and fed the thousands. And they want to follow Jesus and they want him to do more of the same. And, and he realizes that, you know, the best thing for them is not simply to eat regular food, but to eat spiritual food. And, and so he teaches them that, you know, you need to eat true food. And he says, I'm the true food. You need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And they don't really like that. Um, and what he means, of course, is that the, metaphorically, they need to receive him as the one who would die in their place through his body and blood given on the cross, uh, pay for our sins and, and bring redemption. But they don't like that teaching and they struggle with it and they start walking away. And um, <clears throat> actually, pretty much the whole crowd walks away. And then he turns to his disciples and he says, uh, do you want to leave too? It's interesting. Um, it doesn't seem that Jesus in some ways is too worried about people having to walk away. I mean, we know he's compassionate and he is sorrowful over those that turn. But he wants to confront the disciples. Um, and we, perhaps you know the famous reply from Peter, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And by God's grace, may we all have that heart. I share this because today we're going to look at a passage of Scripture. We're going to start actually a first chapter of three chapters that are hard teachings. The sort of teachings where Christians and those who maybe are interested in Christianity, have heard and walked away. And I want to encourage you and I, to, to, to not do that, but to hear the words of the Lord, to listen to him, and to ultimately say with Peter, Lord, to whom shall we go? We may not like what we hear. We might struggle with what we hear. We may not understand it, but who, where can we go? You are God alone, and you have eternal life. And and just so you know, these are passages, chapters that I struggled with and early on in my Christian life in a very severe way. I'll share a little bit more of that as we go. So I understand the wrestling. Um, <clears throat> but we're going to see Paul as he transitions from chapter 8, where he's talking about uh, the, the truths that strengthen us for this journey through suffering to glory. Now he's going to transition in chapter 9 and begin to address the question, what about Israel? What, what's going on with the Jewish people? Why aren't they coming to faith, given that Jesus is the fulfillment of all these things? He's going to address this question because it's important to the church that he's addressing. The Roman church had many Jews in it. But it's also important to us today, isn't it, to understand what's going on. And so that's what he's going to do. He's going to answer it in amazing ways, but some ways that are challenging. And I just want to encourage you to hang in there. Let's wrestle together through these things and, and to... to 
like I said, I wrestled with these things deeply, so I think I would share any of the struggles you would have. But by God's grace, I've been able to get to the other side and realize this is God speaking, so I want to submit and follow. So I think God has good things for us. But we need His help. Um, I need His help. Um, I don't like preaching messages like this, but I do want to serve my Lord and Savior, and I want to serve you guys. Uh, So let's ask Him for help to be here with us, to guide us as we hear His Word. Lord, we thank You that all the truth about You is good and glorious, even when we don't understand it, and even when we might feel or think otherwise. We thank You for the wonder of the transformation in our lives, being changed from a worldly perspective, a human perspective, to see things and feel things and think things your way. Help us as a result of encountering your word today to know you better, to see your glory more clearly, and to love you and one another even more. Help me to teach well. And I pray, Lord, that you would speak to us. Give us ears to hear and follow you, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. You can follow along in chapter 9 in your Bible in your hands, or if you need to look over at the overheads, go ahead. I'm going to read through the entire chapter, uh, chapter 9 of Romans. Paul says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hate it. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man? To answer back 
to God. Well, what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I call my people. And her who is not my beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have become like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What then shall we say? That Gentiles who do not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law? Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. God's word from Romans chapter 9. We're going to dig into this. We're going to address what Paul is answering, the question, what about Israel? And this would be part one in a three-part series over these three chapters. What about Israel? So part one. We're going to look at four different things. We're going to look at Paul's pain, God's providence, God's prerogative, and God's process. And we're just going through the, the, the chapter here. So first, Paul's pain in God's promise. Um, there are... A number of outstanding questions as Paul's been going through what God's been doing in Christ and this wonder of righteousness by faith. And by the way, as we're going through Romans, um, this is a really rich book. There's so much in this book. Um, and you can approach Romans probably two ways. Uh, thematically, kind of looking at what Paul's saying and how he says it. And systematically. It's a great book for going at things systematically. In other words, what, what do we learn in, in the book of Romans about the idea of righteousness? And we can read all these different statements on righteousness. That's an important approach, but it's not the approach we're taking. And I know that can be hard because there'll be large sections we go through, like today, all of chapter 9, last week, most of chapter 8. Um, and I understand that tension. Um, but we're trying to follow Paul's argument, his flow of thought, and, and kind of not miss the forest for the trees. And that's the problem with Romans. If you boil down and look at the particular verses and systematic topics, you can kind of miss the forest for the trees. We're trying to look at the big themes, what he's saying here. So I understand uh, the challenge in that. And so one thing we're looking to do, actually, if you have any questions on the theology, and I'm sure this week you will have questions, um, please text the church. The number is 978-374-6562. You can text, and, and I will get your text. 
And what I hope to do is kind of see what the questions are and do a short little video uh, during the week answering those questions. So fire away with your questions. I'll do my best to answer them and hold on as we go through and follow these thematic aspects. So back to what we're seeing here. Paul's been addressing righteousness and what it means for Jews and Gentiles. And as we go through this and as he's addressing um, this topic, uh, a natural question is what's going on with the Jewish people? It would have been a question for those in that church because in the church there would have been more Gentiles than Jews and they would have already seen a, a transition that was happening in the early church where more Gentiles came to faith than Jewish people. And it seems opposite of what you would expect, right? Jesus is the ultimate Jew. Jesus comes to fulfill all the Old Testament. And, and you would expect, of course, the Jewish people are, by and large, all going to come to faith in Jesus and follow Jesus. And yes, there'll be Gentiles too, but what's going on? What about the Jewish people? And it remains a question for us. What about the Jewish people today? Now, the answer is three chapters long. So we're going to see some of the answer today. And I first though want us to just to see what Paul's doing in the beginning here. He's sharing his own pain about this. He says some pretty powerful things here. He says he has great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart over the Jewish people. Over their lack of faith in Christ. Over their lack of salvation. Great sorrow, unceasing anguish. And he's not just like you know, speaking dramatically here, because before he says that, he, he invokes Christ and the Holy Spirit as his witness. So he's basically saying, I'm not, I'm not lying. I'm not just trying to be dramatic here. Guys, this is me. This is my experience. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart for my fellow countrymen, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. He even says, I wish that I myself were a curse and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. He's sharing his own pain over their lack of realization of who Christ is, over their lack of salvation. That's how he starts out. And, and this is not just Paul just kind of like slipping, oh, maybe I should have been so honest about myself. Paul is laying some groundwork for the things that he's going to say. He wants his audience, and God wants us to understand some things. First, before we get into these things about the sovereignty of God, we need to understand Paul's pain. But we need to understand that this isn't just biographical. Paul actually is acting just like another famous leader of God's people, Moses. And after the incident of the golden calf where God's people very quickly had turned to idolatry and worshipped the golden calf instead of God. I mean, they had God doing massive miracles in their midst, and yet they still turned uh, in their human sinfulness that we all share to worship a golden calf. God was rightly angry. And Moses pled with him in Exodus 32. We can show that verse. He's pleading with God to have mercy. And he says, but now if you will forgive their sins, but if not... Please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Moses pleads with God and says, God, if you're not going to forgive, blot me out. I would rather be accursed and cut off myself than see my brothers cut off from you. That's what Moses is saying. And we have to ask the question, why is that in Scripture? Why is the beginning of Romans in Scripture? Why is Moses' reaction in Scripture? 
And I would submit that it doesn't, it, it, the aim in it isn't to be biographical, but to point to something more important than just how Moses and Paul felt. To point to the very heart of God himself. The heart of Christ. God told Moses and would have told Paul the same, you can't be cursed. You can't be blotted out. That's not your choice. But there is one that was cursed for the sake of his brethren. There is one who was cut off and suffered all the horror of what that means. Galatians 3.13 teaches us, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. All the agony, all the sorrow, all the horror that would come with being blotted out, would come with being cut off, would come with being cursed, Christ took upon himself on the cross in our stead. And this is the heart of God. And we must understand this as we start into these topics that are hard to understand in God's sovereignty, that God's heart is one of mercy. He is the ultimate one who loves lost sinners. And we know from elsewhere in Scripture, Ezekiel 33 it says, say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? And Jesus himself, speaking of Jerusalem and the leaders who are rejecting him, says, how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing we need to understand God's heart and even His sorrow over those who reject the truth and run the other way. Paul is demonstrating his pain so that we would see the connection to Moses and ultimately to Christ and God Himself. That we wouldn't misunderstand God and think somehow in His sovereignty He has no compassion for sinners. We've already read eight chapters worth of that amazing compassion and mercy. So as we enter into this, let us remember these things. Let us know God's heart. Let us know that God himself is able to both be totally sovereign and yet even sorrowful over the wicked running their own way and being damned for it. Paul feels that same pain and that same consternation. And he thinks about Israel too. This is, this is really hard for him. More than just that, it's the people aren't coming to know Christ. But these are Israelites. He speaks of them and all their blessings, all the promises that they had and lived in. Theirs is the adoption. God calls Israel his son in the book of Exodus. Theirs is the glory, the glory of God in their midst, visiting them in the temple and dwelling among them. Theirs is the covenants, the covenant with Abraham and Moses and David. Theirs is the giving of the law, the very tablets of God, the written with the very finger of God on stone, receiving the law from God himself. Theirs is the worship, the service of worship at the temple. Theirs is the prophetic promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, these heroes of the faith. Theirs actually is the greatest part of their legacy, Christ himself coming from them. And so this is why he feels this way. These are not only his brothers, but they, these are people of great promise. And so one cannot help but feel like, what happened? Why? What's going on? We might be able to relate to some degree the disappointment we feel when things don't turn out the way we thought, when, when an institution or an individual we've put our faith in 
doesn't do the thing we would think or does the opposite of what they ought to do, we feel that sort of disappointment and letdown. That's part of what Paul's feeling, but it's even more than that because this is Israel. This is historical in a way beyond compare. And so he expresses this deep sorrow, this anguish over this reality. He feels this, and and we must remember God himself in his sovereign plan never stops having the same heart, desiring all to be saved, yet he's still sovereign over those that aren't. This is a mystery for us. And let me tell you, you cannot reconcile it. You cannot understand it. You must hold it together in parallel. And so let's hear that first point. God's pain, God's pain really over the lost as expressed through Paul. Secondly, God's providence. Paul goes on to answer this question, to provide answers to the natural question. Did something happen? Did, did the promises fail? And so in verse 6, but it's not as though the word of God has failed. And so he goes on to explain this in verses 6 through 13. God's providence in his promises, that there's always been God's providence, God's choosing, his superintending over all things and providing blessing, but also determining everything that happens and working out a plan according to his wisdom and his goodness. And so the history of Israel is one where he chooses to rescue some and let others go their way. It started with Abraham himself. Abraham was chosen out of his city and his people where they walked in darkness. He was chosen and called to come out of darkness by God. God called Abraham. He didn't call everybody at that time. He called Abraham. He rescued Abraham. And then through Abraham's sons, he called Isaac to be the inheritor of the promises, not Ishmael. And then Isaac had two sons, and he called Jacob to be the inheritor of the promises, not Esau. Now, you can read the stories about these people, and you can read much blessing given and promised to Ishmael, and much blessing promised to Esau. It's not that there wasn't blessing, but proportionally in terms of being inheritors of the promises, there was a difference here. And so Paul can cite Malachi when he says, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. This is from the book of Malachi. And the specifics, if we went through Malachi a little while ago, in Malachi chapter 1, 2 to 3, God is speaking about the fact that after the exile that they had earned by their sin and all the peoples in that area had had been exiled, had been attacked by the Babylonians, God restores Israel back to the lands and restores them together. But he leaves the Edomites, the the descendants of Esau, without full restoration. And in that context, he says, this is because Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. So relatively speaking, the promises of restoration, the promises of mercy and grace were especially given to Jacob and his descendants. Not that he didn't love and honor the Edomites in some way, but relatively speaking, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. This is the history. This is the history of the story here. It's not a surprise. It shouldn't be a surprise to any of us that this is how God works. That he chooses to rescue some and he leaves others to go their own way. Now he still is good. He still brings blessing and we can spend time talking about all that scripture teaches about that. His general love for all humanity made in his image. But God does choose to rescue some. He is gracious to all. He desires all to be saved. But his covenant promises are sure for his chosen people. True Israel versus 
merely biological Israel. So within the people of Israel and outside of the people of Israel, historically, there were people that belonged to him, but there were some that didn't. This is the history. He has been choosing people to rescue them throughout history. So there's no surprise here, is what Paul is saying. Now, he's going to go on to some of the objections, and you might be thinking about some objections right now. I have in the past, so you're not alone. But there are some important truths here that we need to wrestle through and think through. And we hear choosing, and we as Westerners don't like that, right? We, we value everybody being treated equally. In other words, everyone has equal opportunity. Everyone has what I have. And if you don't do that, it's just not fair. That's how we see things. And so this idea that God would be especially gracious to some and not to all seems unfair to us. That's what this chapter is getting at. There are some things that I think we hold to as Westerners that are, that are actually not right and true. This chapter goes after that. And so that what you're feeling is the Word of God encountering your particular values that are not in line with the Word. I can say that because I've wrestled through it myself. And I think part of the thinking is that we all deserve the same. And yes, God is a God of justice. He understands giving people what they deserve, but that's an important truth behind all this. Because if we're, we're thorough in being biblical, and, and I'm going to hit on this some more as we go along, we, we must recognize that what we deserve is not grace, but holy justice for our rebellion against God and our choosing to live life separate from God. So we don't deserve mercy and grace. They are given freely by God as he chooses. So this idea of God choosing, uh, is, uh, there's a helpful illustration I've heard I want to share with you that I think will help adjust some of the ways we look at it. Pastor Mark Webb shared the following story related to this topic. He says, after a brief survey of these doctrines of sovereign grace, I asked for questions from the class. One lady in particular was quite troubled. She said, this is the most awful thing I've ever heard. You make it sound as if God is intentionally turning away men who would be saved, receiving only the elect. I answered her in this vein. You misunderstand the situation. You are visualizing that God is standing at the door of heaven and men are thronging to get in the door. And God is saying to various ones, yes, uh, you may come, but not you or you or you. Yes, you may come and, and you and you, but not you, etc. This situation is hardly this. Rather, God stands at the door of heaven with his arms outstretched, inviting all to come. Yet all men, without exception, are running in the opposite direction towards hell as hard as they can go. So God, in his election, graciously reaches out and stops this one, and that one, and this one over here, and that one over there, and effectually draws them to himself by changing their hearts, making them willing to come. Election keeps no one out of heaven who would otherwise have been there, but it keeps a whole multitude of sinners out of hell who would otherwise have been there. Were it not for election, heaven would be an empty place and hell would be bursting at the seams. This has been a truth throughout history, and that's one answer Paul is giving for the situation of Israel, the reality that God chooses to rescue many, but not necessarily all. 
He, asks, he addresses a question that comes up next in verse 14 that would naturally come up and I'm sure again it's coming up with us. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Is there injustice in this? And Paul uses an emphatic expression. We've seen it before. By no means is what it says in, in our translation. This is a, a word that carries more than that. By no means isn't strong enough. It's, it's like not ever, never, no way. It's a strong statement that he's making. God is not unjust. No way, never. That's furthest from the truth is what he's saying. And so he's going to go on to explain. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. This is out of Exodus 33. Um, and you can project that verse. He uses this interaction that Moses has with God it's in the same context that we saw earlier where, where God's talking to Moses about the people's sin and saying, we want you, God, please don't abandon us. And, and God, and he, where he offers his own salvation, bought me out of the book. And God is interacting with him. And in it, Moses is saying, you're the most important thing to us. Stay with us. And he says, please show me your glory. And God, in showing his glory, says these things. I will be gracious to whom I will gracious. I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. This is how God reveals his glory. He's a God. He's holy. He's just. But he's also a God who loves to be gracious and compassionate. Yet, he's the one who chooses that, not us. And that's the point here. That's what he's illustrating. Grace is undeserved favor. Mercy Compassion, translated in our Bibles, is undeserved forgiveness. What do both those terms have in common? They're undeserved. They're undeserved. And God is the one who grants such undeserved blessing. And it's His choice to dispense that as He sees fit in His sovereignty. He is God. And he is just. And he is wise. And he acts this way throughout history. And he will act. And, and yes, there will be a countless number in heaven. You won't be able to count how many he rescues. But there will be some who aren't there. And that's his choice. He chooses to have mercy on whom he will have mercy. To have compassion and grace, on whom he will have compassion and grace. The reality is that no one is righteous in his sight. Israel was not chosen because they were better than other nations. They were chosen to demonstrate God's great mercy and grace and his great love for them. And let me warn you that if, if you think you deserve God's favor and forgiveness, you have too high a view of yourself and too low a view of God's holiness. Too high a view of humanity. Too low a view of the glory of the Trinity. We just have to be honest in looking at humanity. And we don't like to do this, but we have to be honest. Look at humanity. Look at the track record of humanity. Look at particularly the track record of those who have near ultimate power and what they do. That will show you what's in the heart of humanity. We, thank God, are restrained from such evils by the fact that we don't have ultimate power and we're afraid of the consequences. That's the reality of God's law and how it operates. He keeps us. He protects us. 
through that restraint. But when people have near ultimate power, what do they do? They commit genocide. They invade countries. They live lives of debauchery and blasphemy. When people have power to do evil, sooner or later they will. Look at history. Look at cultures. Ride your local school bus. I grew up going to public schools. And that was a little demonstration of this every day. And I was a perpetrator of it as well. Yes, we are made in the image of God. And yes, we are glorious ones in that. But we are corrupt. And our corruption is severe and significant. And this is the reality. And so we are gravely mistaken if we think that any human truly deserves favor and forgiveness. We all deserve just punishment. Now God's just punishment is not like something out of Dante's Inferno. It's just. It's perfect. When we all get to the final day, no one will say, whoa, that was a little bit overboard. No one's going to say that. We're all going to understand perfect justice. It actually will praise God for the perfection of his justice. He's measured in his justice, but he is just. And we all deserve just punishment. Separation from God. And that goes on forever if we don't run to him for mercy and forgiveness. I lived for too long under the mistaken notion of the goodness and merit of humanity, and I suffered for it. This passage is calling you along with me to turn from this idea that we deserve this somehow, everybody deserves this somehow, and to recognize that we don't, and God alone gets to choose this. We should not be shocked by this. We should not be shocked by God's free choice in His sovereignty to have mercy on whom He has mercy and to let others go their own way in their sin. We shouldn't be shocked by that if we understood the biblical truth and the truth about God in ourselves. What we should be shocked by is that anybody would be rescued. What we should be shocked by is that He took on human flesh. These are things the angels long to look into, I think, because they understand the shock of it. That God would take on human flesh, that he would live among us and identify with us to that extent in his great love, that he would bear our sins. That's shocking. God in his holiness and perfection would take on flesh and become sin for our sake. That's shocking. Shocking that he would die in my place and yours. Shocking that he offers us eternal life and infinite blessing and bliss, not because of what we have done, but because of what Christ has done for us. That is what's really shocking here. And that adjusts our understanding of these things. That addresses our tendency to charge God with injustice. Paul goes on to explain more about this and he uses the story of Pharaoh. And where God says, I've raised you up for this purpose to demonstrate my glory. Now Pharaoh was an, uh, an evil guy. He was intent on genocide. And God raised him up and even used him and even hardened him in his sin to demonstrate his glory. That's God's choice is what Paul is saying. Pharaoh was already in his sin. God hardened him in his sin and raised him up for this purpose. That's what is taught here. 
And then Paul says in verse 15 or verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? If he can do this with Pharaoh, who can resist his will? How does he find fault? What's the answer that Paul gives? There's two answers here. But the first answer is simply this. But who are you, O man? Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? You are not God. And yet that's what we think about ourselves. We may not think that we're the God of the Bible, but we often, self-included, think that we're the ones who are the center of the universe and know everything that needs to be known. And Paul, through this, puts us in our place. Who are you, oh man? What is going on right here? You're judging God. You're judging God. That makes no sense. He's the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things. He's the ever merciful and kind and faithful one. Every single thing that is comes from him. Every good gift comes from him. He rules over all for our sake. There are countless things that he's doing in kindness for us that we'll, that we'll never know. He's ever active. He's the maker and creator and sustainer of all. And he deserves all the glory. And you are just a creation, a man or a woman, a human. And you would judge God? God alone is the just judge. And so he goes on to say, who are you, a man? Talk back to God and continues. Well, what does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and one for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for the vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. God has the prerogative to judge justly and wisely. And yes, in his great mercy and love and wisdom and all these characteristics, he's God. He gets to make this decision, not us. And it's a just and right decision. There'll be nobody who's unjustly condemned. Yet he's sovereign over all that. And he has the right to determine this one I'm going to pass by, but I'm going to demonstrate my patience and mercy and love and my patience and love with them. Anyone who goes before the Lord has not put their faith in Christ will have to stand on their own life and they will suffer those consequences of eternal separation from God. And they will have a long record of God's kindness to them in their lives and their constant rejection of that kindness. That's what's being said here. God is doing this. He has the right to do it. And yet, there are vessels prepared for mercy and grace. By the way, there's mystery here, right? So this never says we know who they are. We don't. We read that there's a countless number, so we always assume that one might come to faith. We always operate that way. Jesus operated that way in his mercy and his ministry, so we follow his lead. But it, it's going after the question, what about the fact that some don't? This is the answer. God chooses. God has the right to choose. God has the right to do this. He is the judge. And so there's something here that's getting at something, maybe in your heart, at least in, it's done it in my heart. Who is God in your life? Who is the judge, the ultimate judge in your life? You or God? 
And will you submit to him as the true God who gets to make these decisions because he is God and we're not? Finally, and more quickly, God's process for his promises. Verses 25 to 33, Paul talks about the reality that God has been merciful to Israel and that Isaiah talks about this in their history, that he himself preserved a remnant from them. And the history of the, the people of God in the Old Testament is that they rebelled again and again and again. As soon as in the desert with the golden calf, it started to happen, right? And again and again it happened. And yet he was merciful, preserving a remnant. Even when they did heinous things, he kept thousands for his name. And he continues to do that. He does it to this day. And there's a plan here, though, also cited from Hosea, that God is going to turn to those who are not naturally the children, not part of Israel, and the ones that aren't called the, the children of God will be called children of God. That he has a plan to reach the Gentiles, these other nations as well. He's going to get it more into those details and how these things interact as we go into 10 and 11. But this is the process. And then he finishes the, in the paragraph, Speaking of the reality that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. There's a process to how his promises are realized. And we've learned that as we've gone through Romans. The process is grace received by faith, not by works of the law. This is the truth of the gospel. This is the truth of Christ who came to, to fulfill our righteousness for our sake. This free gift of righteousness is in Jesus. And it's by receiving that in faith, not by works. This is the stumbling stone, Jesus himself, for many Jewish people in that day and perhaps today as well. It's not about works. It's about grace through faith. And so God's process for salvation is this way alone. Grace through faith, not by works. And many have stumbled over that. So Paul has begun to answer this big question, what about Israel? He shared his own pain, reflecting God's heart. He talked about God's providence in choosing to rescue some and let others pass their own way. He's accentuated God's prerogative in all this, that God gets to do this because he's God. And he has clarified God's process of fulfilling his promises through faith alone. I know this is challenging. As I said, I tried to walk away from God over this. I, I tried. And by God's grace, I had the sense to know I could run but not hide. I wrestled with him for years. I thought God was a monster when I first encountered these truths. I learned through the process that the monster was me, not him. And that though I don't understand everything, I can trust him and I must trust him alone, not myself. Not my own ability to figure this out. Not my own ability to reconcile sovereignty with human choice. I had to come to him and say, you're God, I'm not. And I trust you. And in time, I began to understand the truths behind that, that the reason for this is because God is holy and wise and just and good and all his ways are right. And I don't deserve and no human deserves his mercy and grace. Those truths helped me in this. So I wrestled through this. 
I don't think this is some obscure truth to be dismissed as unimportant. It's here. It's going to occupy three chapters of Romans. So I encourage you, too, to wrestle with this. Let's wrestle together. We seek to live honestly and openly together, so you can ask anything. Your biggest struggle behind this truth, please ask. You can text me, and I'll try to wrestle with you. But there's good reason to wrestle, because on the other side of it, you'll see God more clearly. You'll see yourself more clearly. And you'll see the preciousness of Christ crucified and risen for you more clearly. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and I pray for your help, Lord. I thank you for your compassion. Lord, and and when I turned away from you, you chased after me. And I pray for each one here that they would experience you chasing after them, not letting them go, but calling them to wrestle with these truths and get to know you as you really are. Show us more of your glory as a result. Make us more like Jesus as a result. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.